Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonian church, he was writing to a church experiencing the kind of, the kind of persecution, the kind of tribulation that seems to have been common for all of Christ's churches during that time. So in his second letter to them, he begins, right after establishing in their minds the gracious provision of, of grace and peace from God, right after commenting on their abundant growth in faith and love, he begins the meat of the letter by applying what he's already pointed out, the gracious provision of God to their immediate circumstances. God, he'll argue in our, in our text, God, the same God who is, who is holding them up and strengthening them in their persecutions is the same God who will fulfill his purposes both for them and for their persecutors. With that in mind then, I'll bring God's word to you this morning under this theme. In the day of judgment, God will display his just judgment on both his saints and on their persecutors. We'll look first at the just rewards that he gives, second at God's just judge, and then third, we'll see how God displays his just judgment in answer to the prayers of his people. In verse 4 of this opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul recorded his, his boast in the Thessalonians' faith and steadfastness. Paul held up this church in Thessalonica as a church worthy of imitation. That church in Thessalonica had copied the example of the churches in Judea by remaining steadfast under persecution. And now Paul wanted Jesus' churches in, in Achaia, in, in the region around Corinth, where Paul was staying at this time. He, he wanted those churches to copy the faith and the steadfastness of, of the Christians in, in that church in Thessalonica. But in verse 5, at the beginning of our text, Paul introduces something new. He lets the Thessalonian church know that somehow the persecution that they're undergoing, along with the faith and the steadfastness that they demonstrate under that persecution, somehow this is an evidence of the righteous judgment of God. He writes, this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, what does this mean? Well, Paul is making three things clear here. He's making clear to the Thessalonians his, his confidence in them. First, in the truth of their calling. Second, in their worthiness for the kingdom of God. And third, in, in the witness that their suffering is producing. So first, Paul is confident in the truth or the security of their calling. He wants the church to know that the fact that God is supplying them with what they need to get through their trials is a sure sign of God's favor. They are God's people, and God is supplying them. This is what he means when he says, this is evidence. God's supply of steadfastness clearly shows that God is on their side, that, that God has called them into his kingdom. But more than that, Paul tells them, secondly, that their perseverance under trials is bringing about a clear demonstration of their worthiness for the kingdom of God. This is evidence, he writes, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy. There's a process at work, he's telling them, there's a process at work in which God is demonstrating that they are worthy of his kingdom. 
See, it would have been easy for these Christians, for these Thessalonian believers, to see their trials as evidence that God had abandoned them. But Paul takes this evidence that they're looking at, this persecution that they're under, and he actually flips it around. This is, in fact, evidence that God favors them and is at work in the church. And when we face trials, it's, it's, it's so often very easy to just view them from the surface. And sometimes a bad reading of the Old Testament will actually compound this. We can see things like disease or, or poverty or, or even persecution as, as punishment from the hand of God. But if we see with eyes that are on the lookout for God's purpose in our lives, if we, if we begin to look with senses attuned to, to the work of the Spirit, if, if we pray for discernment to see God's hidden purpose in our lives, then, then like Paul in Romans 8 verse 28, we can say of all of our trials, of, of everything that we undergo, for those who love God, all things, yes, all things, work together for good. For those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And, and with Joseph at the end of Genesis, we can, we, we can look at the trials that, that lie behind us and, and say with confidence that, yes, God meant this also for good. And a third thing that Paul is making clear here, though, though he doesn't state it outright, is that this faithfulness, this, this allegiance to the kingdom of God was, as he tells the Philippian church in Philippians 1.28, a sure sign to their persecutors of their destruction, but also a sure sign to their persecutors of your salvation and that from God. In the case of the Philippians and also in the case of the Thessalonians, the, the perseverance of the believers clearly demonstrated the fact that God was making them strong. In the words of Gamaliel in Acts 5, verse 39, and remember here, Gamaliel was a scribe. He was himself a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council that had crucified Jesus and persecuted the apostles in Jerusalem. So in the words of Gamaliel in Acts 5, 39, if it is, that is, if the church is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. The church of Christ is unoverthrowable you might even be found opposing God. The staying power of the church made it clear both to believers and to unbelievers that God was on the side of his people. And so to assault the church was to go after the apple of God's eye, to assault God himself. See, how you handle God's gospel, how you handle God's gospel determines how God will handle you in the final reckoning. If you oppose the gospel, you are opposing God and will be judged accordingly. But if you obey the gospel's command of faith, then God makes it clear that he will be on your side. So Paul moves on in his next section to deal with those who oppose the gospel. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And the word since here in this, in this verse makes it clear that there is, a, that there is a direct connection between how the persecutors treated the believers and how the persecutors were themselves going to be treated on the day of judgment. Paul makes it clear here that, that, that God will only punish in this way those who actively took wrath upon themselves. By, by persecuting, by assaulting those who clearly belong to the kingdom of God, the persecutors in Thessalonica were openly rebelling against the king. 
What's clear here, what, what, what Paul is making clear here is that, is that just as the Old Testament law demanded that the punishment fit the crime, uh, think of what God tells his people in Exodus 21, verse 24, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, just as the Old Testament law demanded and repeated the demand that the punishment fit the crime, so also God would deal in perfect justice with those who persecute his people. Paul's making it clear that, that when God is the one administering justice, all judgments are perfect. And Paul carries on with his logic when he comes again to God's evaluation of the Thessalonian church. God considers it just, he says, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. To these Christians, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And the point that Paul's making here is that it will be just for God to bring them, to welcome them into his joy. And beloved, it is just for God not only to repay evil for evil, but also to repay service with reward. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 6, verses 9 and 10, the author of that book tells the Christians to whom he is writing that he is assured of their salvation, just like Paul does here. And not only that, but he is also sure that God, in accordance with his perfect justice, will reward their faithfulness. For God, he writes, is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So whether our faithfulness looks like the, the, the loving service of the Hebrew Christians or whether our faithfulness looks like the endurance under tribulation that this Thessalonian church modeled, faithfulness will receive a just reward from God. But this promised just reward is still a gift of grace. It's not something that we earn. It's something that Christ has earned for us. It's not a question of meriting salvation, as we confess in question and answer 63 of our catechism, but these rewards that God promises for good works are gifts of grace. God has graciously promised to reward those who are faithful to him. Every act of faithfulness in this life will be repaid in the next. As Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. There is a tremendous blessing promised to faithful servants of the gospel. Paul moves on then in verse 7 to demonstrate to us just how these just rewards will be given. God's just judgment, both on his persecuted saints and on their persecutors, will be carried out by none other than the Lord Jesus. God considers it just, he writes, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, depending on which side you're on, this is either the best news ever, or it's the worst thing you could possibly hear. 
There are going to be two very distinct reactions when Jesus comes in glory. There will be terror and there will be rejoicing. Those who rebelled against him and refused his gospel will be terrified. Jesus tells us that that they'll be so scared that that they will cry out to the mountains and hills, fall on us. We'd rather be crushed by boulders than face the wrath of Jesus Christ. But those who longed for his appearing will say, yes, yes, this God is mine. And they will share in his glory. For those who rebelled against God, Jesus' revelation from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire will be terrifying. Remember Jesus' parable of the the wheat and the tares? At harvest time, the master of the field in that parable, he sent his servants out to, to collect the weeds into bundles and burn them. And as Jesus explained it to his disciples, those weeds are the sons of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For those opposed to God, the presence of his angels is a sign of his awful judgment. Paul also describes Jesus as being in flaming fire. And, and this, is a, this is a reference back to Isaiah 66, 15, where God, through his prophet Isaiah, tells his persecuted Old Testament people that the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire, the Lord will enter into judgment and, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And the Lord will inflict this this, this, this awful vengeance, our text tells us, on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, he's not talking about two distinct groups of unbelievers here. But Paul has in mind here uh, those people who who have rejected the gospel and the gospel's call to faith, and therefore, who don't know God. They have made a decision to say no to the lordship of Christ, and they will be treated in accordance with their rebellion. And beloved, rebellion is the right word here. See, God created the world and all the people that live on it, and as their creator, he is their rightful lord. And so anytime anyone refuses to acknowledge him as lord, they are committing the very highest form of treason. And as we've seen all along in this text so far, in the judgment of God, the punishment fits the crime. They they refuse any association with Christ in this life, and their eternal reward fits with that crime. Paul writes in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And notice how he clarifies what he means by this, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, in in, in life, they made it clear that they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And in death, their wish is granted, and Jesus has nothing to do with them. Understand this, that there is no greater sin than remaining obstinately apart from Jesus Christ. And there is no greater punishment than, than being removed altogether from his presence. This is the true horror of hell. 
The outer darkness is darkness because there's no light. There's no joy. There's, there's no love of any kind. There is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you were unconvinced at this point that the missionary call that is on every Christian was also on you, the doctrine of hell should drive that folly from you. Understanding that this is what awaits your unbelieving neighbors should put you on your knees before the throne of God in repentance. Our neighbors need to be reconciled to Christ. Hell should make us weep for them, but hell should also make us missionaries to them. But for those of us who, like the Thessalonians, have made the Most High our refuge, the return of Christ is going to be glorious. We'll see him on the clouds of heaven, the judge, like our catechism says, the judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. We'll see the one who ascended to heaven and has been interceding for his beloved before the throne of his father. We'll see that glorious bridegroom, Jesus, the glorious bridegroom, coming back for his bride, the, the exalted one, coming to exalt those who are proud to call him their own. Remember again the parable of the wheat and the tares. That parable also says something about the final reward of the saints. In, in that parable that the landowner tells his workers to gather the, the, the weeds into bundles and throw them into the furnace... But then he tells them to gather the wheat into his barn. And when Jesus explained this parable to his disciples, he had this to say about the glorified Christians. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. From the perspective of those included in this harvest of righteousness, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares is, is yet another reason for joy. There is glory for the saints at Christ's return. As our text says, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Those, those who avoided Jesus in this life will have their wish to be left alone granted in the next. But those who believed, those, those who were happy to be associated with Christ in this life will also spend eternity with him. And, and not just in his general vicinity, but as the text says, he'll be glorified in his saints and marvel that among all who have believed, he will not be a far-off king on a high throne. He will, be, he will be incomparably glorious, but he will be with his people. The wicked are removed from the presence of the Lord, but believers are brought near to the presence of their Lord. And Paul finishes this short teaching on the return of Christ by turning his attention back to those Thessalonian believers at the end of verse 10, because our testimony to you was believed. In previous verses, Paul had proclaimed his confidence in their eternal destiny by, by, by pointing to their endurance in the face of affliction and their growth in faith and love. He, he had pointed to the fruits of their faith. And now he gives his greatest reason of all. Paul is convinced that Christ will be glorified, not just in his saints in general, but in his saints in, in, in that individual church in Thessalonica because 
the testimony that he had presented to them was believed. The testimony that he had presented to the Thessalonian believers, that, 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 that gospel message that, that, that the Messiah needed to suffer and die and that Jesus was that Messiah, that gospel message was accepted by them. They had heard the word that Paul preached and, and the Spirit opened their hearts to believe. The first key of the kingdom had done its opening work. And because they had believed his report, their eternal destiny was secure. Because they believed in the Christ that Paul preached and because they demonstrated their faith with faithfulness in persecution, Paul had every reason and they had every right to believe that God had judged them worthy of his kingdom. And it, it, it's this worthiness in the face of judgment that Paul then prays about. As he writes in verses 11 and 12, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember that back in the first point, Paul had talked about those Thessalonians being considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And then here in, in verses 11 and 12, he's, he's emphasizing something different. He's, he's not praying that God would consider them worthy. He's praying that God would make them worthy of the gospel. In his previous letter, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12, he, he, he wrote that, that like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and we encouraged you, and we charged you to, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And now he goes a step further than just exhorting, encouraging, and charging. He moves his request from earth to heaven. Often when we think about God's work in growing his church, our minds go straight to the preaching of the word. And, and they should. But God makes it clear that his church is not only built up by proclaiming the gospel. God also builds his church through the ministry of prayer. Uh, think of what Peter said at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of Acts about, about the primary ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem. It was a ministry of teaching and prayer. And think of the command that Christ gave to his disciples to, to pray for the coming of the kingdom. Your kingdom come. And think of the promise that Christ gave to his disciples in Luke 11 verse 9. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And in verse 13 of that same chapter, he tells them that, hey, if, if sinful parents are willing to give good things to their kids, how much more will your heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Prayer is crucial in the ministry of any church. It was crucial in the first century in Thessalonica, and it is, it is crucial here. Just as those Thessalonians could not have come, just as any of us could not have come to faith without the work of the Spirit, so now any work of faith, any resolve for good, for the continued building of the church, will be just impossible without the power of God's Spirit. See, we can make all the resolutions we want, we can do all the work we want, but without power from on high, there is no power down below. 
Without God's presence with his church, in his church, there is no power in the church. If God is not with his people, we are just a delusion social club. But if God is with his people, if Christ is truly building his church, then the church, again, is is unshakable, unconquerable. The church can only carry out its work of glorifying Christ by the power of Christ's spirit. And having presented his request, this is where Paul goes next in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. When Paul prays for a worthy church, he prays for a glory-oriented church. And this brings us back to verse 10, where Paul had spent some time exalting in the, in the judgment of God that would glorify his saints in the, in the presence of their Lord. And Paul's request before the throne of grace is in the first place that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Remember that in, in, in the judgment of God, the, the reward fits the recipient. So Paul prays that that the Lord may be glorified in them, not only because the Lord is worthy of all praise, but also so that at the judgment, those who glorified Christ will in turn be glorified by Christ. What a thing to pray for. What a thing to pray for. The glory of Christ in his church is the basic reason that the church exists. It's what the the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The church's chief end is to glorify God. Beloved, we must pray for that kind of church, and we must add to our prayers faithful efforts to make it so. That is, after all, what any resolve for good or work of faith must be about. Everything that we do at church, at home, at work, at school, everything we do has to be for this purpose, the glory of our Lord Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He tells the Thessalonians that he is praying for Christ's glory in them, but he's also praying for their glorification in Christ. And this gift of glory, which Paul says is, is according to the grace of our, uh, our God and, of the, and the Lord Jesus Christ, is a gospel gift. This gift of glory is a gospel gift. Remember, without grace, without Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, none of this is ours. Without Christ's experience, without Christ's experience of the horrors of hell on our behalf, We receive no rewards, we receive no grace, we receive no glory. Without Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, the only verdict that a just God can issue in our case is guilty. But praise be to God. According to his grace, he has not only taken us out of the domain of darkness and sin and brought us into his kingdom of light, but he has also promised us glory in that kingdom. And this is the promise that allows us to look to that day of the Lord with eager expectation. This promise of glory allows us to long 
for his appearing. This promise allows us to say, Maranatha, come Lord. Amen.